when I say the word urgent, what comes to your mind? Don't shout it out loud. For those who are 80s people, you're probably thinking of a song right now. But uh, what comes to your mind when I say urgent? Would it be a song or a story? For me, it's a story. The story of when I first learned what urgent meant to my wife as she was pregnant with our first child. Now, I thought I knew what urgent was. But one day, I don't know how far along she was carrying Brett. Uh, but, you know, pregnant women crave things at times, right? And so she said different cravings in all of her different pregnancies, but I was a new husband, and I was about to be a new dad, and so we're driving, it was somewhere in Douglasville, Georgia, in a little Dodge Colt we had, and she says to me, just kind of out of the blue, we weren't really near any restaurants, but she said, I need a McDonald's hamburger. And so being the really kind and smart husband that I was, less than two years old, I said, we'll see if we can find something. And she turns to me and she said, now. <laughs> and she kind of rubbed, you know, the part of her that, it's like, oh. And so suddenly I understood what urgent actually meant for the first time. Like, we should buy a franchise and build it right now. We have to have a McDonald's hamburger in the next 15 seconds. Uh, I don't know what we did, we found something, but it was a whole new escalated understanding of the word. She's had different cravings before as well. Like uh, with one of our children, she craved crushed ice. And because I had learned from the past, uh, one night we were uh, sitting in bed and it was late and she goes, she just said, I need crushed ice. I thought, now? That's kind of what I thought, right? <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, honey. <laughs> but... Um, you know, those kind of experiences, that's what I think about when I hear the word urgent. Because it kind of got me off what I was thinking about the word's definition and onto what she was thinking, kind of where she was. Mark does the very same thing in two narratives in chapter 3 in which he gets us off what we think is urgent and onto what's actually urgent, and that is God's priorities about his mission. He does this. In verses 7 to 19 of Mark chapter 3. So take your Bibles, would you, and turn there. Let's analyze two contrasting scenarios today that will help us understand more about the missional urgency of Christ and of his Father, God. Now as you're turning there, let me remind you, this, this set of narratives comes on the heels of some other urgency. If you recall... Prior to this, the Herodians, as well as the scribes, Pharisees, we'll call them religious leaders, began to feel the, the threat and the weight of Christ. And so they began plotting how they could kill him. So their urgency is increasing, but in a, in a fatal, sinful manner. I believe that Christ is feeling the weight of this as a human being. And so he knows the urgency now exists for him to continue towards Calvary, continue towards the cross, to not only, watch this, not only complete his mission, but to make sure that his mission continues, all right? So we're going to kind of see how this unfolds as he feels the urgency in light of the fact that there's an urgency among those who don't like him. In fact, there's an interesting verse in John's gospel that describes this time frame from a different perspective. It's John 5.18. You might want to make a note of this in your margin by Mark 3. This verse takes place at the same time as Mark 3, but here's how John would put it. I think this is quite intriguing. John 5.18 says this, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. You see the urgency there? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, in their estimation, of course, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. That summarizes the last three weeks, doesn't it? Those Q&A sessions in which he revealed his deity, and yet they were like frustrated that he wasn't obeying their version of the law. And so the end result was, we're going to kill him. So urgency is mounting across the board. We're going to see what urgency demands this morning as Mark relays to us two contrasting scenarios. And here's where we're going to end up. I'll just kind of take you to the end of the runway if I could for a minute. Here's kind of our take-home truth. We're going to begin to see that a commitment to Christ's continuing mission, 
means we are willing to move away from consumerism and urgently pursue his missional priorities. That's kind of where we're going to end this sermon. So would you say it with me? Get a snapshot of it. Write it down for a few seconds. But say it with me, would you? A commitment to Christ's continuing mission means we are willing to move away from consumerism and urgently pursue his missional priorities. Your mind is probably asking several questions in light of that. Let's see if we can answer them via our text for a few moments. Mark 3, beginning in verse 7, the Bible says this, that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Numea and from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. A large area, multiple towns and cities. Who followed him? Say the two words with me in verse 7. A great crowd. Keep that in mind. It's mentioned several times. The next verse is no uh, exception. It says, when the, say it with me, the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. There's a ton of, of, of insight in that verse, and we'll share it in a moment. Just kind of make a note that they came to him when they heard all that he was doing. And in light of this, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the, say it with me, crowd. Third time it's mentioned, and in every time it's used and seen as a negative. In fact, in 7 through 12, there's no other way around this textually. The crowd is considered an obstacle. Look at the next phrase of this verse says. He says, get a boat ready. The, the implication is, I've got to get away from the crowd because they, are, they, they will crush me. See that in verse, verse 9? Lest they crush him, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. I mean, if you can imagine in your mind like a mass crowd exiting a stadium through one entrance, perhaps a tunnel, and it's just shoulder to shoulder, you know, it's cheek to cheek. I mean, you're just crowded. This is how the crowd's trying to get to Jesus because they want to touch him because they know when they touch him, what's made them sick leaves. They're healed. This says nothing in this particular case, by the way, about their salvation per se. Were some saved? Probably but the point of this is not that the crowd came because they wanted his salvation. The point of this is the crowd came because they wanted his benefits. And they were pressing in on him like he was a celebrity and a superstar and a hero. If I could just get one touch of that man, my life will be better. I think this is why he said, let's get a boat ready. Because that's not really why I came out. I'm not like the magnet everyone wants to touch and make their life on the surface better not why he came. So you got to see, in this first scenario, the crowd is an obstacle. It's considered a negative because of their desires to consume. Notice verse 11, though. It gives us here the reason, I believe, there were so many around him that were sick and were healed by touching him. And we, we in the Western culture don't quite get this. Eastern culture folks would understand this without a problem, but we probably read this with difficulty. But it says this in verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And you may say, why is he suddenly dealing with unclean spirits? More than likely what's happening is here, those who were healed were sick because of the unclean spirits in them. Their sickness was a result of their sin, whether it's possession or oppression. And when they were around Jesus, those evil spirits, those unclean spirits came out. And notice here, they actually said what hasn't been said by those around Christ in the last three scenarios. Remember, in all three questions, he's trying to reveal his deity in various ways. They're not, they're going to admit that. But here are the unclean spirits who, who really have no opportunity to even be saved. They readily acknowledge the obvious. You are the son of God. But in verse 12, he does an odd thing. He strictly orders them not to make him known. Now, is them referring to the unclean spirits or to the crowd? Perhaps both. Take your pick, your call. I tend to think it's referring to the unclean spirits. The, the, the interesting point is verse 12 is, is really Mark's literary transition to the next scenario. And I think this is a, a, a masterful piece of writing inspired by the Holy Spirit because what he does in 7 through 12 is he... He portrays the crowd as an obstacle, as a negative. And then he says to the unclean spirits who were um, the ones coming out of these sick people that were touching him in the pressing of the crowd, he says, don't make me known. But then what does Christ do next? 
He selects the opposite of a crowd. He takes a select called few and he tells them how to make him known. Isn't that kind of interesting? You'll see this in a minute unfold, but it's just a beautiful literary transition. Mark's saying, hey, watch this. Jesus here is telling folks not to make him known. Why? Because he can't trust them with his message. This is one of the reasons I would say that in 7 to 12, you're talking about a majority of people who were only coming to Christ for what he could do for them on the external or the surface. Get rid of a disease, take out an evil spirit. It's very similar to John 6. It's, John 6 happens a few months later in Christ's life. But in a harmony of the Gospels, if you track this, what you'll find is that John 6, which occurs later, there's about five to maybe even 10,000 people following him. And the Bible says this, they followed him because of the signs that he did. In other words, they liked the show. Here's this traveling, we'll call him a, a magic rabbi. Have you seen what this guy does? Man, this is amazing. Let's just follow him. And in John 6, you find the most amazing church growth incident in the history of the world. The followers of Christ are at probably 10,000. It goes down to about 12 by the end. I mean, you're not asking Jesus to speak at your church growth seminar, are you? So, so Mark 3 is similar to John 6 in that he's seeing a lot of folks who want him for all the wrong reasons. They're consumers. They're in the crowd. It's actually an obstacle to what he really wants to accomplish. But because Christ knows the urgency of the hour, he calls 12 men to him. This is what the next narrative discusses. Before we move there, let me just mention a couple more of the things about the first one. Not only is the crowd considered like the negative or the obstacle mentioned three times, I want you to know that we're not saying that out of this crowd there weren't people who weren't truly saved. There possibly were. We, it's not recorded here. We know that in some crowds, we know that that happened. I think the key thing to note is that the, the, the general response that Mark is noting for us is that they are responding to the Lord with a selfish motive. And so as he leaves this scenario, in which he says, don't make me known. I can't trust your reasons for following me. I can't trust you to deliver the message appropriately, so don't tell anybody. It's both, again, a timing and a truth principle here. He then goes up to the mountain, verse 13 says, and he calls to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. Now you should underline that verse and draw a line back to the verse I mentioned earlier. Which is in about the end of verse 8. In which it says that a great crowd heard all that he was doing and they came to him. But yet verse 13 talks about how he calls those whom he desired and they came to him. What you find here is really a, a we'll say more in a minute. But what you find here is the difference is in who does the calling. And I'm just going to be really just... Theologically transparent with you. Who does the calling is the issue at stake here. And when you come to Jesus out of your own desires, when you come to Jesus, when you call, follow God because of your own effort for what you can get out of it, it will never last. It's consumer-based. It's driven by your felt needs. It's surface level. It's like gripping the handlebars tightly as you can, white-knuckling your way through. But at some point, you'll lose grip. Why? Because you don't have the Spirit's power enabling you to grip it. What we all need is what verse 13 talks about, the calling of God. And then responding this way on the, uh, in the power of, of His Spirit and His name. So He calls whom He desires. They come to Him. And verse 14 says, He appointed twelve. Isn't that a beautiful contrast to the crowd mentioned earlier? Isn't this so counterintuitive how we think? If we want to get something done, what do we think? Give me a lot of people, right? I do. You think that? But Christ's strategy was not to mobilize the crowds. Now, this does not take away from the fact that he showed mercy to the crowd. But in his mercy, he's not revealing his strategy. He's just simply being merciful. He's being God, and that's wonderful. But his strategy comes in the next scenario. When he leaves the crowd, he draws to himself 12. He appoints them. He also named them apostles. And here's what he appoints them to do. That they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Now I'm going to come back to verse 14 in a moment. Let me read you the names of the apostles first. These disciples, these 12 that he 
took to the mountain with him that he appointed who would carry on his mission. And by the way, who would preach? See that? He didn't tell them to be quiet, did he? <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? So here's this, this, there's so many contrasts here. These 12 are Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. He also called these guys Boanerges or Sons of Thunder. It's a great nickname, isn't it? Imagine being a couplet and your nickname was Sons of Thunder. It just kind of makes you want to go and start something, doesn't it? It's a good name. <laughs> Verse 18, he called Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and of course Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. You took these lists of names, you could spend 12 weeks, and that'd be a wonderful series. Uh, there's a great book out that discusses this, so I won't preach those 12 weeks. Uh, the book's called 12 Ordinary Men. A lot of you are going through this in your small group along with our study through Mark. I'd encourage you to read the book, 12 Ordinary Men. It goes through each of these people in a beautiful way and shows the incredible transformation that God brings into a life. It goes into a lot of his historical facts about them. I think it's thoroughly enjoyable by John MacArthur. It's a great book. I encourage you to read it. He discusses these 12 disciples or these 12 apostles. You may be wondering, well, Todd Jews is in that group, but he wasn't really committed, was he? Was his level of curiosity just deeper? How did he get in? I mean, he wasn't even a born-again Christian because he denied the Lord. It says the devil entered his heart later. What's going on with that? How did he get in this group? It's a great question. I'm glad you were thinking that way. I was one of the same thing this week, right? Here's what I discovered. I think it's so... Um, all inspiring about our Lord. If you wonder, like, why did he choose Judas? Like, why did he select him? The Bible says in John 13 that he selected him to fulfill the scriptures. Did you know that? Go back to Isaiah 41. David there prophesies through his own experience that the Messiah, the son of David, would actually be betrayed by one who ate with him. It was a friend who would do this. Well, as we know, Judas does eventually eat with him at the Lord's Supper, and that's where it's revealed to Judas that one of you is going to betray me. Now watch this. This is what I think is so incredibly, uh, it's just beautiful. And it's, I almost want to use the word ironic, but, but it's not ironic in a weird way. When Jesus selects Judas, watch this, just listen very carefully. When Jesus selects Judas, he's actually affirming yet again that he's the Messiah. So what do you mean, Todd? Because Jesus didn't prove his divinity, his deity, his messiahship by his miracles primarily. We often think that, but that's not true. He did the miracles to affirm and to validate and to attest to who he was. But his messiahship was actually initially stated and proven by the fact that he fulfilled every one of God's Old Testament scriptures. He was the fulfillment of everything God had promised. And what did God promise? That there'd be one who'd be a friend who'd betray him. And so in, in this oddly ironic and yet beautiful way, in selecting Judas, Jesus says, I'm going to do what seems humanly difficult and will be painful later to show you that I am the Messiah. I will select the one who will betray me. He'll eat with me and he'll turn his hand against me. It, it, it's just amazing how even in doing something that may seem like he's not in control, he's actually doing the very thing that shows he is in control, that he's God, selecting his own betrayer and fulfilling God's word about his very own life. He's one of the 12, and it's these 12 who initially were, were appointed to do two things. Notice look at verse 14. Now look back in your Bibles with me. To be with him and to be sent out. Now, you're saying, well, Todd, you've left two out. There's two things you've left out in here. Preaching and authority to cast out demons. Well, I didn't leave those out, but they're not the primary or even the secondary verbs in this clause. Did you know that? So let me be grammatical with you for a moment. And all of you English teachers can listen up with, with smiles on your faces. All of us try to keep our brains on, though. When you try to see what a writer is intending to say, whether it's in our own language or even the foreign language, like in the Greek, you look for what they call primary uh, subjects, primary verbs within a clause. In these clauses, in this verse, in this clause, the primary subject is the fact that Jesus appointed, and he appointed them to do what? 
the two, uh, uh, excuse me, the word appointed is the primary subject, the primary uh, predicate verb. But then underneath that are some secondary uh, verbs, we'll call them. And those are to be with him and send them out. And then within those two verbs are what we call embedded verbs. And those are to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So I'm going to say this to you just textually and factually. The point of the commissioning isn't to cast out demons. In fact, I have to say this, to be honest with you, out of the text of myself, the point of the passage isn't to preach. The point of the passage is the relational one and a directional one. In other words, I'm going to select you 12 and to ensure that the mission continues, to ensure that you can share the message appropriately, I can trust you with it, I want you to be with me, that's relational, and I want you to be sent out, that's directional. Have an upward focus and an outward focus. Now, in the outward focus, there were times they would cast out demons, admittedly so, and praise God, amen? There were times they would heal, there were times they would preach. In fact, I would say that out of the 12 who were sent and then later 70 were sent, those things happened. Not all of them did all of these things. Some of them did. It was one of the ways that they uh, made disciples. But the point isn't in the how. Did everyone cast out demons if they didn't? Were they really a disciple or an apostle? And you can hear that, you know, did everyone do this, have to do that? And we kind of get hung up on the, on the secondary things. The point is not the how. The point are these two verbs, be with and send. In fact, let me just show it to you in a chart. Jason, can you pull this up? Because I know this may strike you kind of odd. You may be looking for some proof. Here's really how it breaks. It's hard to see, but I just kind of circled for you the actual verbs in the Greek language. You can see the primary predicate there, a point. Underneath that are these secondary clauses and these secondary predicates, be with and send. And then underneath that are these embedded clauses or embedded predicates. All I'm saying to you is, guys, don't let phrases like cast out demons, uh, preaching or authority, or do we still have big A apostles, all that kind of, don't let that distract you. That's not the point he's trying to make in this narrative. Are you with me? The, the point he's making is he is selecting some people to represent him. And so he must be with him. There has to be a deep relationship and there's got to be a proper direction. It's relational and directional. These are the missional priorities of our Lord. It is a relational ministry. It is a mission. It is a directional mission. And this is what he does for the next two years, by the way. He spends the bulk of his time in an increasing fashion with these 12, getting to know them, letting them get to know him, his heart for what he must complete for the Father's will, which is dying for the sins of the world. That's an other-centered rescue mission from heaven. There's nothing selfish about that. It's a selfless uh, pursuit of God on behalf of sinners. And so he's letting them see his heart for that. His face is set to Jerusalem. He goes that way. And so they get his heartbeat. He sends the Holy Spirit. And when they, they are sent out, their goal then is to be other-centered, sacrificial, generous for the sake of the mission. Is this kind of making sense, guys? This is what we're looking at here is Jesus Christ transferring so much of what he knew his father called him to do to these men who would follow him. It's so different than the first narrative, isn't it? 7 through 12, it's all about consumers. What can you do for me, Jesus? But 13 through 19 is, man, it's just a selected few. And he's saying to them, here's what you will do for me. And I'll give you the heart to do it, the love to do it, the motivation to do it. I'll be the empowerment behind every bit of it. And these two contrasting scenarios really show us a lot about the missional priorities of our Lord. Can I just mention this to you as well, that when you look at these two primary verbs, be with him and then be sent out, I would probably say to you, and I can't prove this textually, the order of them may not indicate this. It may. Uh, jury's out, perhaps. But I would say the order of that has some consequence. That there is a reason, he said first to them, be with me. And then be sent out. 
Because if you're sent out without understanding the heart of God, if it's just like this kind of checklist, if it's just the items you got to do, you won't have the heart of God for that. There's a, there's a way that the relationship affects the direction. Are you with me? I say it like this, the relationship fuels the responsibility. And I think this may give us insight into one of the things that plagues the modern church. We're trying to engage in the responsibility without the foundation of the relationship. And so when your pastors come to you and they ask you to really have a heart for your city, to pray for those who are lost, to maybe jot a name down, to pick up a community welcome bag and drop it off at a home of someone who's new to our city. When just different ideas come before you and, and, and we're like, I don't have time for that. I've got soccer practice and dance class and I've got uh, you know, my master's degree I'm pursuing. I've got my second job. And none of these things are evil in of themselves. They're not. But we list off seven, eight, ten things that are urgent to us. And we don't have time for what's urgent to the Lord. It's not a direction issue. It's a relational issue. We don't understand the heart of God. You see, I don't think our problems with urgency. I don't. I think all of us understand full well a lot about urgency. I think we're just urgent about lesser things. Things that in the end probably just don't matter. Are you urgent about God's priorities? When we are, we will prioritize the relational aspect of spending time with him, understanding his heart, seeing him as King Jesus, not as consultant Jesus, and then hearing his heartbeat, knowing his priorities, we will live that out. That's why I got to say this to you guys. It's not an option for us whether or not we're going to be ascending church. We don't get to vote on that. Now, we may can talk about the best way to go about that, but we don't back that truck up and say, hey, you know what, God? We're going to not be ascending church anymore. Like, who, who has the authority to make that call? We don't. What did the Father say? He sent Jesus. And then what did Jesus say? As the Father has sent me, so send I you. We are a sent and a sending people by God's decree. So what we should wrestle with is how do we go about that? That kind of heartbeat only comes when there's relationship first, responsibility second. Could it be that, that your kind of buck upness, is that a word? I don't know if it is. Could it be that your buck upness against outreach, witnessing, multiplying, missions, take whatever word you want there. Could it be that, that you're raised back on those issues is not a directional issue at all. It's a relational one. You can't imagine letting go of some of your money to give to foreign missions. You just can't imagine that. I got a new 4K TV I got to get, dude. You can just list the priorities. Could it be that it's not directional? Your issue is not with what's going on. It's that you really don't know God like you say you do. You don't know his heart. He's a missionary God who went all out for sinners brought them back to, the, to himself through the death of his own son. Yeah, Jesus did that. That was the Father's mission. When we see that heart, how can we live in any other way but as a sent people? That's why these two scenarios, they contrast so well. The consumer who's in it for themselves and the committed who's in it for God. In all transparency, can I ask you, where would you plant yourself? Don't answer out loud. I'm not trying to guilt you into something. I'm not trying to leverage you weird. I'm just trying to be bold with you as your pastor. Where would you plant yourself? Do you get close to God? You want to rub shoulders with him? You want to press against him because he makes your life better on the outside? Is that really you? I mean, look in the mirror and have this hard talk with yourself. Is it just a beneficial thing right now? Like, hey, it's, it's accommodating and it's helpful. It it's helps me if I go to church and act like I know God. But what about when it comes to sacrifice and mission, assignment? 
pain, suffering for the sake of God's mission, are you still in then? I see Brian back there. I want to tell a story on him because it shows really this whole relational directional thing really well. Everybody's looking at you, Brian. They're like, where is he? Where is he? And Brian's got his own story to tell. You can see him later for more details because I'll share a few things that will probably make you have more questions. No problem. He's an open book. But just a few weeks ago at Easter, Brian was driving home on 69, going to meet their family, I think, for Easter dinner. And along the side of 69, there was just this guy walking, young 20-year-old guy, I best remember from what you told me, Brian. He shared this story a few days after Easter, and, he's, and he just senses God's spirit say, pull over and help this guy. So he does. Pulls over and says, hey, you need a hand? The guy says, yeah, I need to get to Ames. And Brian says, well, I'm going to Huxley. Well, I'll go as far as Huxley. I'll get you that far. The guy says, sure, he hops in. And they begin to have a conversation about this guy's issues. Why is he looking for, to get to Ames? What's going on? The guy was strung out on drugs. Had a history of several try, ways to try to get clean, just rehab, and just finding no real success. So Brian shares his story. And Brian's got a story involving some of these things. God's given Brian a, a renewed, kind of revived lease on life lately. And he's still working through some things. None of us are at a perfect place, amen? He's like all of you, by the way. You're working through your issues, aren't you? Okay, a little humility goes a long way, people, okay? I'm working through mine, you're working through yours, he's working through his. But he senses God's spirit, say these people's over, and helps him have this long talk. At the end, man, there's this like, like, man... Another guy that knows what I'm going through, and they can change numbers, or at least Brian gives him uh, our church's number, church's name, and they talk. And I don't know how God will use that. My point is this. Six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, Brian would never have stopped the car to help a guy he didn't know. Why? Because he, it wasn't a directional outreach missional thing that Brian was struggling with. It was a relational thing he was struggling with. And as Brian got to know God more deeply as Brian is getting to know God more fervently and relationally and passionately. You know what is next? Oh, there's a hurting guy on the side of the road. He's listening to the Holy Spirit. God leads and he obeys. Does that make sense? It, what prompted that wasn't a directional command. I got to do this. Er, pull over. Get in. I got to help you. What's your issue, dude? You know, it's not saying I forced evangelism here. His heart was turned toward the things of God. And so as the Holy Spirit leads and, and, and directs him, he's, he's, he's prone to want to obey. He's like, yeah, God, I'm listening, I'm hearing. That's what we need. So to that end, let me just give you a couple of compelling principles that we derive from this text, all right? After we see these two contrasting scenarios, as we see really the strategy of Christ in making sure his mission continues even after he completes it. What are some things we can learn about these two things? I want to just give you quickly four compelling principles. I'll show them to you one at a time. At the end, we'll show them all together so you can just kind of hold your cameras till then and get your snapshots then, okay? Or you can write these down however you want to do it. But I don't give you four things. I'll go through some of these kind of quickly and some I'll linger on. But I want to share with you some application uh, ways to make sure these two contrasting scenarios kind of are lived out in our life. First of all, his mission demands intimacy, urgency, and legacy. So we've kind of discussed this already. I won't spend long here. But just understand that the missional priorities of relationship and direction, of an external direction, like, you know, outward focused and upward focused, those two things are what we talk about when we talk about intimacy, urgency, and legacy. See, we all love to leave a legacy. Everyone wants to leave a legacy with people. But sometimes we... Don't value the intimacy that's required for that. And I'll just say this to you up front. You will, not, you will not acquire the ability to love people in the way you should to leave a legacy if it's not God inspiring and motivating and developing that love. For the Bible says this, that we are taught of God how to love each other. So if you don't let God be your love teacher, so to speak, you'll use people. I'll use people. We'll see them as tools just to get our way in the end, which is really just kind of a disguised consumerism isn't it get my way in the end using people along the way but when God teaches us how to love people then there's this intimacy with him with others 
we sense this urgency to make sure that when we're gone, his heart continues in those we've been close to, and suddenly there's this legacy that occurs. So this is what the mission is really all about. And I think this is really Matthew 28, 19, and 20, just in different words. He said to them, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them. And then he says at the end, lo, I'm with you always. So he's promising his presence, his intimacy. Now to us, in the Holy Spirit, we're to work with people, make disciples who make disciples. This is the mission of God. I would remind you of something here, church. Listen very carefully. It's his mission. It's not our mission. Now, we say that sometimes, and I think you know what we mean. We sometimes say the mission of the church. I get that, but I think that's technically, theologically inaccurate. Because God didn't give his church a mission. Don't be distracted. Listen to me. God gave his mission a church. You see, it wasn't like God thought about a mission once the church came into existence. Like, oh, you know what? Here's some folks gathered in my name. I'll give them something to do. Let's make disciples. At Abraham it started. And God said he would bless all the nations of the earth through calling Abraham. All the nations means someone from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue into the family of God. How is that being accomplished now? Through the church. So God didn't give his church a mission. God gave his mission a church. So who are we and how should we respond now? By saying, Lord, your mission's been going on for thousands of years. It's our turn to be close to you, to be directionally, outwardly focused, and to make sure that when we're done, we pass the baton to the next generation. Because his mission matters. Second compelling principle I find in these verses. That is God's power, not man's interest, that instills in people a divine urgency towards his mission. I think I showed you the contrasting verbs, didn't I? That Jesus went and they came and they tried to touch. In other words, they took all the action in the first narrative, the first scenario, and it didn't, didn't last. Because it was all of them mustering up the work. But in the second one, it's Jesus still going to the mountain, but now he's calling those whom he desires. He's the one instilling the passion. He's the one appointing. It's all his work. Now, I'm not diving into this too deeply here, except to say this. That's when you truly see the right kind of change. Not just in, in how your life goes, but in, in the way it goes. In other words, if you want to see change relationally and directionally, it has to be change empowered by God. Not by you. There's a word for this that I want to bring you up to speed on. You, some of you know about it, but it, it's the word, a change in your affections. Jonathan Edwards writes about this a lot. He's an old preacher, theologian. You can read about a page a day of his stuff, and you're kind of overwhelmed. You've got to step back. He's kind of in the vein of John Owen. He's hundreds of years old. But Jonathan Edwards was a, 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 a tremendous help um, to God's church. He writes about the need for a change in our affections. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying that we need a change in our actions. And though some of us do, right? We all need some action change. And he's not even saying we need appetite change, though we all do. See, those, those changes are like this. The action change is what you do. The appetite change is what you want to do. We both need, we all need those kinds of changes. Would you agree with that? Yes. But an affection change is when God changes why you want to do what you do. That's some deep change. And Jonathan Edwards calls this, that's where the real fight is. The fight for your affections. And when God begins to change why you do, excuse me, why you want to do what you do, that deep level, he begins to change actually the direction of your life. Suddenly you find yourself wanting and desiring to see his name spread and so you're loose with your money in the right way. Loose with your money is not the right way to say that, I know, but you get the point, right? You're free to invest your time, your focus, your heart. You're no longer ashamed to talk about the need 
for places around the globe that have very little access. You admit, yes, we have needs in our community. We want to help that. I want to witness to my neighbors. But we can't ignore places where there is not a single church or very few Christians. And so we gladly say, let's do what we can to see the gospel get where it's not yet, uh, where it yet not is, where it's not yet, so to speak. Forget my English there. And so, so things begin to change. Why? Because God is changing why you want to do what you do. And when you begin to sense affection change, it's one of the surest signs God is at work in your life. Because I'll tell you, and this is just a moment of great pastoral transparency, you can change what you do. You can. Ask any parent who's got a four-year-old. The power of consequence can change what someone does. External, on-the-surface change. And you can actually change what someone wants to do. You change the menu for dinner, I want to go home, right? I'm just saying you can change people's appetites. There's all kinds of ways to change what they want to do for a short term. But only God can change why someone wants to do what they want, what they do. And when you start seeing, man, why is it I, I, I long for people to become Christians? Why do I long for God's name to be known? Why do I long to give this away, to share this time, to make this sacrifice, to invest my energies? Why do, I, why do I long for this? Because God is changing you in the deepest level possible. Here's what I want to warn you about. If that's not what you're seeing, if you're only seeing the what kind of change, and then you're praying that no one finds out what it's really like inside your heart, the only person to suffer from that in the end is you. You're playing with eternity, church. Because God will not... What would we call it here? God's not going to say to you, welcome home, if all you've done is change the outside and you've never addressed your inner condition. So I would urge you in this moment, analyze your heart. Does it long for the things of God? Is it steered towards his mission that's been going on for, for thousands of years? And does your heart long to be part of that mission? Or is it like, well... I just do it. No one really knows what's really going on. Oh, take stock of your, of your life. Take inventory. Your eternal destiny may well be at stake. Third compelling principle I want to bring to you is this. That this missional urgency, his mission is, is urgent because its continuation is hinged to its completion. This makes the mission that, that we're on uniquely different. Because we're not like every other system of belief or religion out there. Which says what? Okay, let's go and let's recruit. Let's gather followers and show them what they have to do next. Make a trip to Mecca. Get married in the temple. Put some gods in your home. Bow down five times a day to this direction. It's up to you. If you want to stay in, you got to do these things. We're not going with that message. Our mission, though it continues, is actually hinge to a completed one. So in one sense, you could say Christ here realizes that, that his mission is about to be culminated at the cross and he's urgent about that, but he also knows that that continues beyond the cross through these 12. But they're not going with, a more, with another list, church. They're not saying, oh, by the way, let's make disciples. Here's your list. They're going with news. Hey, guess what? The list is over. He's done it. It's finished. Just trust and believe in him. So we go with news, we go on mission with news, yes, but it's good news that he's done all that's needed to be done. He's completed the mission. Do you kind of get that together now? So it's a unique mission. We don't go with a list, we go with news. We announce that Christ has completed his Father's mission. Last compelling principle. Missional urgency means that I'll be upwardly fueled and outwardly focused. And, and we've discussed this enough, so I won't spend long here. But let's just kind of repeat this briefly. A vertical focus is necessary if you're going to have a horizontal impact. I'll just give you one reason why. The horizontal impact will wear you out if you don't have a, a vertical focus. It'll eat you up, spit you out. People's needs are great. You don't have the energy or the, or the, 
or the self-compassion or the selflessness to, to, to even accomplish that long term. It takes the inner man, Paul said, being renewed day by day to stay in the fight and the mission for God. Now, let me give you a couple of ways to, to actually see this happen. Now, you land in this plane, okay? Here's some real practical shoe leather applications for you. Some of these will sting, and some of these won't. But I want to help you live out this, these contrasting scenarios and these compelling principles. They're all before you now. They give you some ways to, to kind of put shoe leather on these. When you leave today, uh, there'll be a table in front of the door. And on that table will be two cards. One's a discipleship pathway card. It's actually an assessment tool in which you just kind of answer four or five questions under each topic. And it will give you some sense of where you are in your relationship, in your walk with God. It's not a perfect tool. It's just a helpful tool, okay? It's not required in Scripture. It's not inspired by God. Give enough disclaimers here, right? But it is a helpful tool to kind of help you think about what's my next step? So pick one up today and take it. We've been saying this for a few weeks, maybe even a month or so. It's not our desire to try to log this or track this in a weird way, but it's our desire to shepherd you well and to know where you are spiritually and to help you take the next step. Now, if you say, well, I took that, Todd, and I'm at this level called lead, which is the fifth step in the pathway. I'm at the lead level, so I'm done. No, 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 no. You're missing the heart of God in this. Those who are at that level, we'll call it that step, whatever you want to call it, that phase, if you're really there, you know what you're doing? This is where I told you it could sting a little bit. If you're really there, you're looking around saying, who can I take through the pathway next? You're willing to multiply yourself in someone else. And if that's not your heartbeat, you're really not leading. You see, leading there doesn't mean that you're, you, I'll be an elder or I'll be a deacon. or It may mean that, but what it really means is this. I'm willing to take what God's given me and help someone else with it and make a disciple. Ouch. That's what it means. If you're at the grow area, just ask yourself, what's the next step? Leave us a note. Use that card. Use the feedback card and say, hey, hey, how can I start serving? I've been attending here. I've been growing here. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm, learning, I'm loving Jesus. Man, I want to serve somewhere. We'll get you plugged in. There's all kinds of ways, but a lot of times it starts with just assessing where you are so we can help you in the best way possible. So when you leave today, don't hear me say, fill it out and turn it in someday. Hear me say, take the time, fill it out, and leave it today. <laughs> Is that Okay. It's not a command of scripture, but it's a helpful way your pastors are trying to say to you, we want to help you have a relational focus in the mission of Christ. Beside that will be a second card. It's the who's your one card. It's designed to get your eyes off your own world and even off your name and into the world and name of someone else. Again, it's not required in scripture. There's no verse that says you have to have a who's your one card. I get all that. But would you admit with me? Man, I am pulled every day by the lure of, of, of selfishness and consumerism. I'm pulled that way every day. Are you? I mean, social media screams at us. It's all about you. How many likes can you get? How many retweets? How many, uh, all these other things they say about it. I mean, it just screams at us. Make much of me. And it's good for us to be prodded and nudged to, to not Think of ourselves sometimes and think of someone else. And that card is a way for you to put on there the name of someone who does not know Christ yet. Write it in two places, tear it off, give us one half, you keep the other half, and together we'll just covenant in prayer to pray that God would bring them to faith. It's a small way to be directional, externally, outwardly focused. Because the two missional priorities in Mark 3 are what? They're relational and they're directional. So it's just two tools to help you be relational and directional. So take one, fill it out before you leave today. Drop it in the baskets there, take it by Connect Center, put it in the offering boxes. And together, let's, let's walk towards living out the missional priorities of our commander, of our king. A few other ways to apply this. When you leave next week, the plane has a slow landing, by the way. When you, when you leave next week, There'll be many bags out there called community welcome bags. And they're designed for you to take one or two or three 
And then before that week ends, just drop by that house. There'll be an address in the bag. It's the address of someone who's new to our community or who has a new home in our community. Maybe they already live here in Ankeny and they just moved to a new home. But either way, they're new. Go by there, take the bag, and just visit that house that week and say, hey, thanks for uh, being new to Ankeny. How can I help in some way with anything? They may say, oh, I'm not really new. Just say, okay, great. Welcome to your new home. Or if they're new, say, well, hey, how can I help you? And just talk to them a bit. We're not asking for you to develop a deep friendship, have them over for dinner, or even go in their house. I'm just saying, and, and, and forgive, maybe not forgive, but allow some room here for me to be really just kind of transparent with you. For about 30 to 60 seconds, to knock on the door and just be welcoming and hospitable. That's not too much to ask. And the reason some of you don't is completely selfish. That's just the bottom line. You don't want to take five minutes to drive in your neighborhood to a new house and knock on the door of someone you don't know because it's uncomfortable or because you think it's maybe weird or what are they going to say? Hey, can you just get over that for a few minutes and just take the bag and say, hey, this matters, and I'll do two of them. I'll do one of them. That's all I'm asking. That's all we're asking. And it will begin to breed in your heart that other people and their name and their situation is a good focal point. So next week when you leave, we're actually shooting for this. We're trying to see if we can have a week in which 100% of our community welcome bags are gone on the first week. It's a big goal. I told 8.30, tell you at 10.30, let's shoot for that, okay? Let's aim that every bag be gone. And this isn't to guilt you. I'm just trying to be a bold pastor with you and nudge you toward what we see in this text. That we can't just think we can attach ourselves to Christ and his body only when it feels good for us. I'll just get what's good for me and then I'm out of there. There are points in which God's, God's mission matters more than our schedule. These are some small ways to apply that. I'm asking you. Let's take some steps to visibly show this. You see, all these come back to our take-home truth, don't, don't they? That's all this does. All these compelling principles, uh, the contrasting scenarios, they show us this. Say it with me one more time, would you? That a commitment to Christ's continuing mission means we are willing to move away from consumerism and urgently pursue his missional priorities. Say, Todd, I don't think I have the strength to live that way. You are so dead on on that. You don't, and I don't either. But the one who does modeled for us perfectly how to do it. Jesus Christ, he gave up his life, didn't he? And in giving up his life for us, in dying for us, in modeling and living out the ultimate other-centered rescue mission, he shows and empowers those who follow in his train. I would just ask you this morning, don't leave here with more white knuckling. Don't put your feet more firmly in the cement of self-will to get this done. Just lay yourself at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, in the shadow of your ultimate sacrifice, I'm going to give my life away for your mission. And watch God empower you at the deepest level to live and be urgent about what matters most. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.